on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. There's like a weird crossover of like cartoonists and and uh, sex, you know, perverts. Let's just call them perverts. Uh, no, just like people are into these like, you know, these like sub dom parties. It's like spanky yeah. spanky parties, timey up stuff. And we they would throw these fundraising kind of parties where it just be like ran out of space. And then they're just kind of at the beginning and there'd be some performances. But then definitely the night would start to shift to where it's like, oh, no, this is when the dildos come out and the real <laughs> sort of like stomping on each other happens. And then we would cut out. But we would show up like we would show up like. We're here know, for the like, first hour. Just for the first part. But then when oh, the yeah. kids really get serious, then we're going home. You know, when the trumpet of dildos begins. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'm be- I, I imagine we've already started the show. I mean, that's what it seems like. Um, uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm talking to Wyatt Senek. Uh It's Senek, right? Snack. 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 Oh, see, I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't have it right there. No, Sinek. it's, it's a very easily butcherable last yeah. name. And I've kind of gotten accustomed to it, uh, getting butchered, but it's very yeah. nice that you asked. And, uh, well, thank you. Yeah. I like to, you know, I like to, I like to try and say people's names right. So anyway, yeah. Uh, and I have never heard your name. I have never heard your name pronounced with the pro- uh, proper accent, with Sinek. But yeah, I feel like I. It's a strange thing of I'm not. I'm not at that level of fame yeah. where I have a publicist who is going to go around sort of correcting people. Uh, I think I'm still just happy to be in in the room and invited. Yes. So it's just like <laughs> eh, you. You didn't. You didn't call me Jeff Tweedy. So <laughs> is that and that probably is a problem a lot. People Yeah, you know, I think well it's it's mostly people being like, I wish Jeff Tweedy was here. <laughs> Cause this guy does not know any Americana uh no. at all. He's no. not none of that sort of alt folk. Uh, yeah. Well you now, gave him a guitar and he couldn't do anything with it. <laughs> You're uh are you in Brooklyn? Are you at home in Brooklyn now or I am at home in yeah. Brooklyn, yeah. And how is your, I, I, this is now, I mean, it's so fucking boring, but it's just, how has your uh, pandemic been? Um, it, it has been, uh, it's, it's been long. You know, I think I've been very fortunate in that uh, nobody uh, in my sort of immediate circle of, of people 
uh, was sick too badly. I think a few yeah. people got sick, but nothing, uh, nothing horrible. I, yeah, I, same here. Um, and so I think in that way, I feel very, very fortunate. Um, Brooklyn has now kind of uh, set. Well, let's start at the beginning with you. You were born okay. in New York City, correct? I was born in New York City. But you are of Caribbean descent? I am. My father is from Grenada. Yeah. yeah. And for those who don't know, Grenada is uh, one of the lower Antilles. Is it an Antille? Uh, I know. It's uh, it's a Virgin Island. Oh, it's Virgin um, Island. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's right off the coast of Venezuela. Um, it's like uh, Trinidad, Tobago, Grenada... And maybe a couple others right there. Yeah. Just spitting distance from Venezuela. Yeah. Very small, small island, um, but beautiful. Uh, kind of unique to the Caribbean islands in that it has uh, a volcano and it has um, rainforest and uh, black sand beaches. And wow. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a unique one that... Uh, some people, it's it's hillier, and as opposed to like some of the islands are a little more flatland, and yeah, uh, yeah, there was. I, I think some people like to believe that it was uh, that it had floated away from the Hawaiian islands. That's not true, but that's well, what that's, people like to believe. That's ridiculous. Yeah, islands don't float. Oh no, I'd like to meet those people. Um, well, there's you, three of them, and I can give you their addresses. <laughs> do you go back much? Do you have family there still? I mean, because you're from, like, a fairly prominent family. Didn't you have, like, some fancy politicians in your background? Sort of. So I don't know if it's a fancy background. I come from a line of uh, of coup people. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, Timely. Exactly. <laughs> um so uh I went back for the first time a couple years ago. I'd actually never I'd actually never been. Oh wow. Like my my mother and my father split up when I was pretty young. And I then see. my father my father died when I was when I was young, um when I was four. And so I never uh I never went back until I, I was an adult. And but the thing I knew about my family is I uh, my there's an uncle in my family who was a part of Maurice Bishop's New Jewel movement and the New Jewel movement. Uh, they came into power by pushing out the prime minister, Eric Geary, who had also come into power by pushing out uh, colonial, uh, colonial rule. Yeah. Uh, and so both Maurice Bishop and Eric Geary are kind of seen as like two people who helped bring Grenada its independence. Um, but my, uh, this great uncle of mine was, uh, yeah, he was Maurice Bishop's number two. And then apparently there was uh, a coup within that coup and my uncle, great uncle, who I do not know, and let me just stay for the record, don't know the guy, uh, but... Still alive? He, I think so. Yeah. But he uh, is 
depending on who you talk to, he either ordered the arrest and execution of Maurice Bishop, who is a beloved figure in Grenada. The airport is named for him. Uh, or he was being used as a pawn by U.S. military. Uh, and this coup within the coup precipitated the U.S. invasion of Grenada, uh, I think, some you know days later. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a weird... Even when I went back, I was like, I'm excited to go back, but I don't want to get too much into the story of this with anybody. Yeah. Because I don't want them to be like, wait a minute, you're the nephew of yeah, that yeah. guy? And I'm like, well, not really. Like, I've never gotten a birthday <laughs> card from the guy. Yeah. My mom remarried. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. We're not even that close. Like, he's, like, removed. And I don't even know my grandfather. Don't give me... Don't tie me to this guy. Yeah. Oh, so have you... When you went back, did you try and reconnect with some of your, your dad's uh, relatives, or...? Yeah, so I actually have some half-brothers, and I met one of my half-brothers when I was down there, um, which was really... It was wild. It was it was really like I didn't expect that I would get as emotional as I did. Uh, he, on the other hand, not very emotional. <laughs> but <laughs> he, I was definitely the little brother in that moment. Yeah, uh, because I was just it, it was the closest to my father that I had been. Um, the whole trip was really just like an emotional roller coaster for me. Um, but yeah, so I. I met that brother and then I went to my father's hometown and my father's buried in his hometown and so I went to go find his grave because I'd never I'd never seen it yeah uh, and while I was there Grenada is such a small island that while I was in the while I was in the cemetery I couldn't find his headstone and I was just kind of like looking around and I've walked through the whole place and the, the groundskeepers of the cemetery were three goats. <laughs> and so there's an element where like the goats are near some headstones and I'm like, I can't, I don't know if they're hanging out by his and I'm like weirded out and I'm by myself. And after a while I was just like, I, I'm not going to find this. And I happened to walk across the street where there was an old woman sitting and I started talking to her and she was like, Oh, wait a minute. Your father, he went to New York and he was, he was killed in New York. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, Oh yeah, I, I know, I know that story. He, uh, as she starts telling it, she basically is telling me we're related. She and I, but she's not saying we're related. She's like, yeah, he's the nephew of my husband or something like that. And I'm like, okay, so that makes you my aunt. And no, no, he's the nephew of my husband. And I'm like, okay. And then she tells me where That's my... kind of cold. It was. It was really, it was very... I, oh, she, we're not family. Yeah, no, no, no. She's not getting a holiday card, but... Uh, <laughs> but but uh, it was this very strange thing that I, she then told me, oh, your family is buried, like, right as you walk in, 
right to the left, they're there. And I went back in and stood there and it was kind of what my whole trip felt like in that I'm standing there and I can't find my father's headstone. He has an unmarked grave. Mm. And so I'm standing basically in front of my, my father, but I can't see him. Yeah. And that's kind of what the whole trip going back was like, as I was like on beaches looking at the ocean the way that my father probably did growing up, but I don't know his experience and yeah, I'm in yeah. his hometown and I'm seeing things, but I really, I'm alone and I don't really know, like, you know, I'm stumbling across people who are maybe my aunt if they so choose to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it was a very, it. yeah. So it was a very odd kind of, kind of thing. I, I would love to go back again. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful island, and I definitely felt a, a real, uh, a, a, a real ton of emotions while I was there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a strange sort of thing, even just to reconnect, or I should say, to connect with my half brother. Yeah, um, yeah. It's yeah. I think that that is kind of all of you know the kind of it's the way everybody's like you know now with getting their. DNA tested and everything about where they're from. And it's like, Oh, like the, it's always weird to me. Like the, 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 the ads where they're like, we thought we were Greek. And then I found <laughs> out I'm actually from Israel, you know? And then, right. so it's, and then they change all their garb, you know, like their right. celebratory garb that they used to wear. And it's kind of like, I don't know which, which matters more. Like the, the action of what you're sort of commemorating or like, the supposed truth of what you're commemorating and to go back to a, like a hometown of someone that, yes, you have that genetic connection, but it's like, so this is me, but it's not me. You know, it's like, a, right. it must be a weird disorienting feeling. And especially too, when it's like from such a beautiful place, like, I, like yeah. I, the law, like I, I can just project that I would feel like I wish I had some ownership of this place rather than just kind of the, detached kind of ethereal attachment that I have to this place. Yeah. And I, and that's, I definitely had that. I feel like to be there, it was this strange thing of, I don't, uh, you know, I don't sound like anyone else in the Island. And, you know, it's an Island that is like, you know, it is a black Island and yet I am a, fairer skinned black person. So I don't look like m most of the people on the Island. So I kind of, there, you know, there are people, my complexion, but they're rarer on the Island. So yeah. there, so there's this aspect of it where it's like, Oh yeah, I don't have the accent. I don't really look like most of the people I'm seeing. I, uh, you know, and so I don't, I feel kind of trapped between two worlds in yeah. a strange way where this is like, you know, I can tell someone, oh yeah, my like, and I would, I remember talking to a bartender and I was like, yeah, my, uh, my, I'm, my father's from here. And he kind of, you know, he was very nice, but he kind of looked at me in this way of like, oh, okay. You know, that's your father. You're not really, yeah, like, yeah. I don't, I don't see you as 
one of us. Um, and so it, so it was, it was definitely in a lot of ways, a very, a very strange experience, but one that I'm incredibly glad that I had. Yeah. And one that definitely like made me really get introspective in a way that was like, Oh yeah, I did this. Why was I doing this? Was I doing this, hoping that I'd get off the airplane and people would be like, He's a, he's returned. He's here and lift me on their shoulders. Obviously, that's what happens. That's what I hope happens wherever I go. Sure. Yeah. Cleveland. Yeah. He's here. Oh, I would love it in Cleveland. <laughs> they take me straight to Cedar Point and I get to ride all the roller coasters, skip the line. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, it's the American dream. Uh, <laughs> uh now, you didn't grow up, though, in New York. You moved to Texas, correct? I did. I moved to Texas. Uh, when little. I was you were young. little, right? Yeah. I was very small. Yeah, my mother and my my mother remarried, uh, my stepfather. And then uh, he got a job that sent us to Dallas, Texas. And yeah. So I did I did most of my uh, most of my growing up there, a child, like all my school and everything. And then I would come back to New York. Because my grandmother lived here, so I'd yeah. come back and see her and spend time. Uh, but yeah, Dallas is—it's uh, where I learned. It's where I learned book book stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is and and what did your uh, st- did and was, are your stepdad and your mom still together or they are? Yeah. yeah. So you did. You had a you know a a, a male presence, a, fa- a father figure at least. Yeah. 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 I think it's it's a strange thing because I and I did, but there is always still that thing that is like as appreciative as I am for all the sacrifices that my mother and my stepfather made so that I could go to school, go to college, you know, go to the dentist, do all those things. There's also the part of it that's like well, your biological parents are your biological parents. And especially when you lose them very young, I think there's just always, you always wind up mourning that loss. Yeah. And the, it's, it's an unfillable hole that I think you, it takes a long time to kind of like recognize that, Oh, right. This is an unfillable hole. Uh, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I can appreciate other people in my life, but also I know that I have this void here that will always be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you could fill it up with uh, drugs and drink. That's all. All right, let's do it. it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Oh wow. He's dr- actually drinking moonshine out of a jar. It looks like. Yeah. No, I've been. That's some people are baking bread. I've been making my own moonshine. Um, it's great. <laughs> he really is, folks. He's really drinking something clear out of what looks like a pickle jar. It is uh, a pickle jar. Yeah, is it a pickle I'm, jar? I'm making my own bathtub gin. <laughs> uh, um. So what? What kind of kid were you? I mean, you are kind of a, a laconic uh, person. You know, a little bit. Uh, you know, on the quieter side. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't like scream your presence is what I guess I should say, <laughs> you know? No, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think I was, as a child, my stepfather would refer to me as an old man a lot. And he would call me Babu, which he said meant old man, where he was from. Uh, and he's from the island of Trinidad. My, oh, wow. My mother had a thing for Caribbean guys. Apparently, yeah. Yeah, she has a Trying time. to book those vacations early. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we go to your family this year? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, yeah, I, I definitely, there were, I feel like when I was around my family, I... I got very used to being quiet and not being a disruption. Yeah. And I think outside the house, all that pent up energy would sometimes show up and I could be a little hyper outside of the house. And in the house, I felt like I couldn't get away with anything. Um, And I had to be kind of the model citizen. And so I feel like, Yeah, outside of the house. Sometimes I would kind of like, I I wasn't much of like a screamer, but I I definitely was a a little more hyper. But I think I was constantly at war with myself of like the hyper, wanting to be hyper, but also terrified if word got back to, to mother and stepfather. Oh, so were there other siblings in the house? Uh, when I turned 13, my, uh, I had a cousin who moved in with us who mm-hmm. was 10. And so he grew up like a brother to me. Yeah. And so I, I think of him as a brother. Um, and so he moved in. Yeah. When he was 10, I was 13. Um, but you had and- already had at least 10 years ish of, of being the solo yeah. The the solo attendant at this quiet church you lived in. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> Library church. <laughs> Was that were they just strict? Were your folks just strict? Your mom and your stepdad and just kind of you know, valued a, a quiet, calm they environment. They were pretty strict. I th- I think they were pretty strict and I don't know if it, if like they weren't necessarily quiet. I think it was kind of like, you know, uh I got the sense that children should be seen, not heard. Yeah. Um, and I think the way that I carried myself in public as well as in the house, it was, uh, there was a sort of strict rules about what I should do and shouldn't do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so they were, they were definitely pretty, pretty strict. And I remember kids would say like, uh, you know, they weren't, they would always want me to come sleep over at their place. They weren't as, as excited to come sleep over at my house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did, has that like, was there points of rebellion in your teen years? Like, did you start to get tired of having to be the, the oh, behaving yeah. one? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, yeah, I think as I got older, it turned into not feeling, uh, you know, not feeling like I wanted to be that uh, and trying to find ways to rebel. And then I think ultimately it, <clears throat> it turned into a thing where uh, 
at some point in my twenties, uh, the, not solely for that, but for other reasons, it became a thing where, uh, we just kind of had to go our separate ways and, uh, it just became better not to communicate, um, with, uh, with my folks. So, uh, for just for, I think at least, you know, mental health. So, yeah, yeah. so we, so I think my, my rebellious face and I think kind of hit, turned into an estrangement. Yeah. Yeah. And is it, did that continue throughout your adult years? Yeah, that's, uh, that's continued still. Oh, that's rough. I'm sorry about that. Oh, thank you. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's a strange thing, but I think, you know, there are, I've talked about it a little bit publicly and I, I've, I've tried not to talk about it too much only because I've chosen a life in, a, you know, in, in a public space, but they haven't. Yeah. Uh, and so I've tried to be as respectful of that as I can, but I, I've talked about it a, a, a little bit and I, I think, Ultimately, you know, there are some relationships in your life and some of them can be family relationships that aren't the healthiest. And, you know, you uh, there is a, a, you know, and trying to bridge that or figure out how to make that work. Sometimes it means walking away from it. And, uh, you know, and that's something that I it took a while to get to. um, And I feel uh, that it is the best decision for me and uh, has been the healthiest thing for me. And I hope that it has provided them some, uh, uh, you know, something as well. Yeah. yeah. And do they, uh, has there ever been any like attempts at rapprochement on, on either side? Like, you know. From their side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And <clears throat> not always in the healthiest of ways. Yeah. So, that only kind of like uh, that confirms only your choices. To, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I have. I'm estranged from my dad too. Um, oh, I'm sorry. For yeah, I thank you. I mean, you know, we're we're in the same boat. But I everything you're saying is exactly the same. It's like, yep, it's sad, and yep, it's a loss, and yep, it's it's too bad and it's regret regrettable, but, uh, yep. It's for the best. Like yeah. just, that's just, yeah. You know, it's like when you, I, I swear that one of the biggest parts of being a grown up is accepting that things can be many things all at once, you know, yeah. like, you know, a person can be your deepest love and a wonderful, uh, caring person who is an absolute cancer in your life, you know, I mean, for yeah. different reasons, just it's, you know, it's a, uh, it's a long life and there's lots of stuff that happens and you just got to kind of keep moving forward as healthfully as you can. Yeah. And I think what's important is checking in with yourself about those things and Absolutely. Seeing, seeing those things and those relationships and figuring out, what it is that you need and being okay with the idea that like, okay, it may not be the, it may not fit the mold of what 
society says a relationship should look like or, you know, what adulthood should be or whatever. Uh, and that's fine. There is no, there is no definition for it. There is no one box that we all fit in. And if we tried, it would break all of us. Yeah. Uh, and so it is really about being okay with recognizing, okay, well, this is what I need to, to be a healthy and happy person and be a healthy, happy person, not just for myself, but for other people in my life. And like you said, if a person in your life is toxic and is a cancer and makes you not just feel bad, but makes you a worse version of yourself to other people who need you, yeah, and who aren't involved in that scenario at all, you know? Exactly. Yeah, you end up projecting onto somebody else. Yeah, because in, you know, because cancer is spread. And so that that toxic relationship that is impacting you, it is going to filter out into the other relationships that you have. And then you are not being the best version of yourself that you can be for those other people in your life. And so I think it's it's recognizing that, like, Oh, when you do these things, sometimes it's like, oh, this feels selfish or this feels like I'm not being the model person. But it's also recognizing, oh, wait, but this is what I need to do to be the healthiest version of myself. I can be not just for myself, but for other people, too. And for that person, I may be enabling behavior that is only encouraging that toxicity from them and not causing them to do the work, whether they choose to do it or not is up to them, but to choose to do it, to be a better person, not for you, but for other people in their lives. I I could not agree more. And I relate so strongly to that because like something that I've said to people in my life is like, (laughs) I, I can only carry my own baggage. Like, you want me to carry your baggage, too? Like, I have to, like, while I'm serving my own neuroses and, and like, you know, like the crying child that wants, wants, wants. Like, in me, like, I'm serving that guy. Now I got to hear your inside baby crying, too, and follow that? Like, no, we all, that's, that's you know, we carry our own baggage. And and to, to expect otherwise, I mean... It happens, you know, when you, especially when you're like in a, in a, any kind of close relationship, there's like a little bit of like, hey, is it okay if I misbehave in this way and you're going to be okay with it? Yeah. Okay. Then, and we'll do that for each other. You know, like there's a little, there's always a little bit of sickness, you know, just to keep it spicy. Uh, (laughs) It's just a little Zatarain. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if you're, but really, truly, if it's like, no, no. Not only do you have to worry about your neuroses and your fears and insecurities, you have to worry about mine, too. You have to adjust your day to mine, too. Uh, Like, that's that to me. And I I mean, I'm 54. It took me a long time. But like, no, that's a no, no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to like, not just not going to do that. Uh, So uh, high school, Dallas, how's that for you? Uh, It was... It was an interesting experience. I went to an all-boys Catholic high school in Dallas that was also an art museum. Wow. 
Yeah. Wow. So we were kind of always surrounded by art. And beauty. That's amazing. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. When you say beauty, I assume you mean the Catholic priests. Because <laughs> yes, I said art. Exactly. And then you said beauty. Yeah. Um, well, I said, no, I mean, why was one of the priests named Art? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, yes. <laughs> Father Art and Father Beauty. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but I mean, it must have been a pretty place to go to school and had kind of like a a feeling of at least an aesthetic, you know, a, a better aesthetic than the cinder block lime green box I went to. <laughs> no, it was really it, it was really cool in that regard because you kind of took for granted what was around you. There yeah. would be paintings in classrooms and sculptures that you just you just sort of took for granted that not every space had this kind of like artwork around yeah um and also though it is a strange thing where you're kind of like every space could do this and this isn't like like you could put art places there's a really there's a high school here in Brooklyn uh called uh Boys and Girls High School that uh it as you enter the building they have these sculptures and there's a painting a mural on the wall and it's like oh yeah those things really do uh they do create a sense of magic in a space where it might not always feel magical yeah. as you're trying to kind of learn uh fractions <laughs> Yeah, no, it's like whenever you go to, like having, you know, on vacation to Europe, you know, that's one of the, you know, you go and you look at old churches and, and, and you do get the feeling of like, oh, wow, when the, when the, the street was knee deep in human shit, I bet this place was really, really even more attractive and magical than it feels now, you know, because it just, it's like, it's so pretty in here, (laughs) you know, and, and it makes you. I, it's it's also there's a hopefulness to it, like there's beauty, yeah. like value beauty, you know. Yeah, well, because it, it's it was a strange it's a strange thing because it still looked like a school. It still you know you still had lockers and you still had that ratty carpet and yeah uh, priests and priests ratty yeah. priests and <laughs> uh, and so but there was like yeah there were these sculptures that kind of drew your eye away from these lockers that are decades old and this carpet that has stains all on it. And it was like, Oh yeah. Like this sculpture is really cool. And it made, uh, yeah, it made going there. Uh, it made going there interesting. And I think put a a sense of like art appreciation into you in a way that you didn't really like it. It just kind of was like, under the surface, you didn't realize that you were being indoctrinated in these ways. <laughs> yeah. That you're being turned Catholic. Yeah. Uh, um, what, what kind of stuff were you, were you an athlete? Were you a good student? I, I like to think I was, uh, athletic. I was not an athlete. I was on the track team, but, uh, I never went to track practice. I was so, I was so bad at going to track practice that uh, typically you needed to go to practice five days 
that week, every day to run in a meet that weekend. I was so uncommitted that they told me, if you just show up three times a week, you can run in a meet, which may, may have spoken to some level of talent that I had that I didn't realize yeah. that they were willing to make that kind of exception for me. But even at that point, just showing up three times a week, still couldn't do it. It was just terrible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just not committed. And was kind of like, kind of a burnout without actually like smoking anything. It was yeah. just kind of like apathetic to it. And so, and so I did that, but then I also, I, I enjoyed drawing and I enjoyed art classes. And, uh, you know, I think in another world, if I had, if I felt like I could have done it, I, I might've focused on that in a way that I would have maybe said like, Oh, I should go to art school. Yeah. But I didn't think that was something that was available to me. What were you doing when you weren't going to track? Was there something, you know, like, or is it just, you didn't like it. It just felt. Some of it was, I didn't like it. Some of it, I, by that point in high school, I had, I had started to drive and I had a, I had like a girlfriend in high school that I could go like hang out at her house or go hang out at her school. Or when I wasn't in a relationship, it was because it was an all boys school. I go hang out at the all girls school or there was a pizza parlor across the street from the high school that had an arcade and you'd go there and fill your belly with mozzarella sticks. And (laughs) so I think there was an element of it, you know, going back to like living in a, in a strict house. When I got home, I wasn't leaving the house again until it was time to go to school. Yeah. And so there was this element of, having an extracurricular that just bought me time I see. to not be at home where I could go, you know, I could just go hang out with friends and nothing I was doing was untoward. It was just like, Oh yeah. I just, I know that I can't come home, like drop my bags off and then go like, Oh yeah, I'm going to go out and go to my girlfriend's to, house. Yeah. yeah. Or like go to a movie or something like that. And so it was just like, Okay, yeah, this is when I get to do it. If I want to go play, sometimes I'd skip track practice and I would just go to the gym and play basketball. <laughs> and so I was still being athletic. Yeah, just, yeah. Like the, it was like, oh no, if I just took this outside, I'd I'd actually be doing something towards earning a Letterman's jacket, which right. I never got. Well, you should have joined the alibi team because that's really what you were looking for is an alibi. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I'm I'm running track, mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not yeah. I'm not filling up on, you know, that Dallas delicacy mozzarella sticks. It is what <laughs> it is what we are known for. <laughs> Dallas is how is that? Do you like being from Dallas? I mean, do you consider yourself from Dallas? I consider myself from Dallas, but I never really thought of it as home. Yeah, it's a weird town. It is. It's I I feel like New York always felt like home to me, even yeah. when I even when I traveled just in the summertime. And you mentioned Cleveland, but Cleveland actually felt more 
like a space because I had a childhood friend who moved to Cleveland. And so in my summers, I would go spend part of my summer with my grandmother in New York and then part of it with my friend Brian in Cleveland. Oh, and wow. Part, and then part with my aunts in Philadelphia. And all I felt much more connected to those spaces than I did to Dallas. Yeah. Um, and those people, too. I mean, it's probably... Yeah begins with the people and then it you know it just kind of spreads to the location i would guess yeah but some of it is the place like again cedar point is an amazing yeah amazing yeah park and you know they you got they would have chili dogs there you could get sick off chili dogs and then go ride a roller coaster <laughs> yeah try that in dallas oh they have yeah, six no. they have six flags over texas don't they, they still have that they do but yeah it, I feel like as a kid, the roller coasters in Cleveland seemed like much more impressive because there was one in Cleveland that I can't remember the name of it, but it was like two roller coasters that it was called the Gemini. And it was two. Oh, because of the twins. Yeah. Yeah. And they would sort of race one another. And so you would go and like you would go, like I would go with my friend and. It would be like my friend Brian and his brother and, you know, whatever other friends they had. And you kind of split off and you'd say, OK, well, we'll we'll ride this roller coaster and we'll ride this one. And then you try to, like, find seats in cars that Next, were like parallel yeah. and you could be like, all right, we're going to win. And then uh, inevitably, you know, everyone loses um, because it's just <laughs> it's just early onset whiplash that you're getting. That's right. That's right. It's, uh, Have you ridden a roller coaster as an adult? Uh, yes. Um, at, at, but it's yeah. The G four. Are you? I'm, are you going to say the G force is excruciating as an adult compared to as a child? Yeah. Yeah. I found I, that from having having actual children going to a playground and then swinging on swings. Have you swung on swings in the last couple of decades? I feel like I have, and yeah, I my equilibrium was. It's it's awful. You just feel your gut sloshing around, like you, <laughs> you know. It's like, I don't know. As a kid, I loved it. You know, I could do yeah. it for hours. And now, when I go with my kids, it's like if you really get a good swing on, it just feels like oh fuck, oh god. Yeah. yeah. No, I got. I remember doing it a few years back, and I got incredibly dizzy. Yeah. And I yeah, I felt nauseous and. It was not a, it was not a good thing, and I haven't been on a roller coaster probably. Uh, it's probably been fifteen twenty years at this point. Yeah, um, and I feel like the last time I went, I was in my twenties, and the next day my neck hurt. <laughs> that's that's old twenties. Yeah, no, I I, I I lived hard. Yeah, yeah. I got in a lot of car wrecks. So. <laughs> uh, where was college? I went to college at the University of North Carolina, Chapel okay. Hill. Nice. Yeah. That's a pretty place, too. It is a pretty place. Yeah. Beautiful place. You've what made been you? There. I have been there. Uh, yeah. What, what made you pick it? I wanted to get out of the house, and I really wanted to go to school in New York. I wanted to go to Syracuse, and I. Uh, North Carolina, my mother and I went on like a little visit of colleges and she, she believed I could get into Duke. I did not have the grades uh, or the 
ability. Um, and while we were in North Carolina, though, we looked at other schools in North Carolina. And I actually really wanted to go to North Carolina State, but then saw the campus at North Carolina and thought it was a beautiful campus. And that's honestly what, like, sold me. Yeah. Uh, and I think my mother's originally from North Carolina. Uh, that's where our fam- her side of the family is from. And so I think there was something that was kind of, uh, I think she liked the idea of me being in North Carolina, close to relatives and mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah. Um, but it is, it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful campus. The first time, I don't know if you remember this, but the first time you and I met was at North Carolina when I was in school. I do not remember that. Actually, was that the first time we met? Yes. No, actually, no, it was not the first time we met. We met before that because I was very briefly an intern on at late night. I was an intern at SNL while I was in college and I had dropped out of school to intern at SNL. And during the dark weeks, I had nothing to do. So I would go over to late night and help out for like a week at a time <laughs> and then like disappear oh. for, for weeks. Yeah. And yeah. So the, exploita- I think- the exploitation of, of free student labor. It's not, <laughs> not only like dark weeks. Well, that doesn't mean you get off too. you get over here and work on this other comedy, <laughs> comedy, you know, workship. I loved it though. But I, but we, but so we had briefly met when I interned and then you came to uh, Carolina to, to uh, speak. And there was a thing that they would do the, the, like the student organizing committee, whenever there was a speaker coming they would take the speaker out to dinner and they took you out to dinner. And a friend, a good friend of mine had figured out a scam that you could pull was if you went to the student organization and said, Hey, I would really love to meet this person. Could I join the dinner? They would say yes. And you would get to take part of a free dinner (laughs) with this person. And so Andy Richter was coming to North Carolina and I, using my friend's technique, finagled my way into the dinner and wound up sitting next to you and chatting with you. And you were very gracious and very nice to me. And there was an aspect of it that I think uh, only having now gone through the experience of having performed at colleges where they take you out to dinner, uh, there was an element of it that I, I feel like uh, you and I were able to kind of have a conversation about like New York things and like yeah. show things without <laughs> it being like, what's it like to meet Heather Graham? Yeah, yeah. Have you met Public Enemy? Yeah. And so I think there, so you, so it was, I, I, I don't know if I provided you some relief, but I felt like, I felt like at some point you had gotten sick of, people asking you yeah. those random questions and then <clears throat> you and I just talked a little bit about the internship because when I interned it was when the NBC fire had happened. Oh right. And so we wound up chatting about like 
how crazy that fire was. Were you working for us or were you with SNL when the fire happened? I was with you all. Oh, okay. So you came out and did our outside show with us then? Yeah, Yeah. there was actually, uh, there was, I, uh, I feel like maybe, maybe we talked about it on, uh, one of the times I did Conan, uh, you all actually got some footage because I'm in, I'm in one of the shots. Like, uh, when it was at the, in front of, uh, the ice rink, there was like a, a boom shot where I happened to be one of the people that was standing as like security to keep right, like, right. random the riff raff out. Yeah. Yeah. From just like rushing you all and Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> and, yeah. Who, who gave me a foot rub if I remember correctly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. For people that don't know there was, and I mean, this would have been what, like 94, 95? This was, I think, 95, 96. Yeah. There was, a, there was like an electrical fire in, in, yeah. in Rockefeller Center that didn't burn anything but just because Rockefeller Center is basically like a huge AV system. And there are there are columns in that building that are just full of cables, uh, you know, running from edit rooms to studios, you know, back and forth, the, you know, to uh, satellite feeds. And just in one of those areas where the, all these wires were, there was a there was a fire. So we had to evacuate the building, and we you know had to scramble. And we did a show out in front of the uh, ice skating rink. And Samuel L. Jackson was the guest, who's probably like the perfect guest to have on a just roll with it kind of show. Yeah. Um, but it was really fun, and I always it whenever. Uh, like I always felt our show and still to this day is better. It's at its best when it gets to be about something other than itself. And yeah. so this was about, I mean, it's still kind of about itself because it's its circumstances, but it's not just like a Wednesday, you know? Right. And like it was, it was, it's the reason that the road shows are always so good because you get to go somewhere and it's about something other than just we're these guys putting on a talk show. So, yeah. And I, I remember, it was funny because in the immediate moment when it happened, there was all this talk of we're going to go to Fort Lee, New Jersey. Yeah. There was a studio there. And yeah. Yeah. They put me in a van and I'm driving, I'm circling a van around the block for hours until they decide like, okay, we're not going to go to Fort Lee. <laughs> and the, oh, that's, and nice. I remember the ice rink. And then my favorite one that you all did was, you took over the the Today Show studio. Yeah. And you wore Bryant Gumbel vests. Yes. And I remember, it's to your point, like, what I feel like you all do so well is that, like, playing with the space that you're in and, like, taking full advantage of wherever you are and just having fun with it. And so... It was that like, okay, we're going to go to the Today Show set, but we're not just going to do our show as usual. What if our show goes through the filter of the Today Show? Yeah. What if we both wear matching sweater vests? Yeah. You know, and and drink with two hands out of warm mugs. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was amazing. It's it's that thing of like it uh, it was such a fun thing, and it was to me what the magic of late night 
that was what I wanted. That was what yeah. I, I, I hoped for. Um, yeah. Well, I have, I'm, I'm glad it's nice to hear you say all that. And I wish I could remember better about like, you know, the years of me touring, um, colleges, which just kind of happened as like kind of a side gig, a way to make some extra money is I got like kind of with a speaker's agent. Then I, he's like, you could do college dates. And I was like, well, what the hell am I going to talk about? So I just basically, (laughs) I, I, it eventually just devolved into almost an entire session of Q and a, cause that's was fun, you know? Um, But I showed clips of the show and stuff. And, uh, and I hope, I hope that the Chapel Hill wasn't the one because I remember there was one, one, and I don't think it was there. I think it was somewhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, I went and I was just, I don't know what was going on. It was like, cause I, you know, I do these things on the weekend after sometimes, you know, in those days, the show, I would have to edit my own bit. So there'd be some days where I was, you know, editing till three o'clock in the morning and then coming back and finishing the edit and then putting it on the show, but just exhausted. And yeah, I went to one college date and they said, you know, we're having dinner with you, which like, that wasn't like a guaranteed thing, but they had a, they had a dinner with students. And I was like, you know what? I'm really tired. I'm really run down. I got to do a show in four hours. I'm going to skip the dinner. And, uh, and like a student advisor type person, not a student, but like somebody that was like right. an advisor called me crying, like saying, oh, like, no. There are kids here waiting to meet you. And I was like, oh, fuck. All right, here I come, you know. I no, thought, I you know, I I hope it wasn't that night, so. No, I don't think it was. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I mean, I, the one thing that I remember was at one point you looked me dead in the eyes and you said, I will never, ever forget this moment. <laughs> and then you kissed me on the forehead <laughs> and you flew away. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. 
Can't you tell my love's a growing? So how does how do you start doing comedy? Is this during college? Do you get this sort of urge? Yeah, I I mean I knew I knew when I was a kid that I I loved I loved comedy and I I had this thought like oh I would love to do comedy but I didn't know how to approach that in Dallas and again growing up in the house I did I didn't think that like comedy was a career uh, that I could really go down. It kind of became this little secret that I held on to of like, oh yeah, I'd really love to like be on SNL one day. And uh, I remember when I was in high school, right as I was graduating, I, my family had put me in this internship program where you would go to this like all day conference and take a test. And then based on the test answers, they would try to find you an internship in the field that this test said you would be best suited for. And so I took the test and I kid you not, the answer, one of the answers that came back and what was the top answer in my mind was stuntman. <laughs> and I was so what thrilled. <laughs> I was so thrilled because I was like, this test gets me. It sees me. It knows that I'm not, uh, you know, accountant material. Right. And the sorting hat doth chose me. And <laughs> I, should inter- be, I should be doing car rollovers. That's what yeah. I should be doing. That said, the internship program had nothing for me, so they threw me out. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Stuntman? Why was that even fucking on there? I I don't know, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful (laughs) that somehow that test, they had tested millions of children, and somehow that, there was one. uh, But uh, that said that you should... You should endanger yourself physically for someone who looks similar to you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> who is more valuable. Yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. Take, take a fall for someone kind of like you. Yeah. Yeah. Should exactly. Cornell West ever star in an action movie? <laughs> you, young man, oh. will be the one to, to jump out of a burning building. That is not a growth industry, though. Uh, no. Cornell West stuntman. I don't think uh, that's going to happen. Well, that's why I made the shift over. I was like, I, I saw no, it, and I was like, oh, yeah. yeah, he's is he, he put out a rap album, but he's not going into <laughs> action hero category. Right. And if he does, um, he'll do his own. Just knowing him, yeah, no, yeah. that's true. Yeah. It's authenticity. That's right. his big. That's his brand. Um, <laughs> but yeah, when I when I got to college, I started thinking about how to do it. And uh, I got involved with like, uh, there there was like a comedy sports mm-hmm. on uh, at my school and I sort of tried it. I didn't really take to it, but uh, there was a guy from there who was doing stand-up around Chapel Hill and the Raleigh-Durham uh, area and so he kind of encouraged me to go to a couple stand-up things so I started doing that and then from there kind of got the courage from that to 
get an internship at SNL, uh, which I just got from writing letters to SNL. And I, I just, back then it wasn't like I knew how to apply from my college. They didn't have a, an inroad. I, I just kind of wrote them some letters and, uh, said, Hey, this is what I want to do. Um, and once I got that internship and then subsequently also getting to, uh, spend some time at late night as well in those dark weeks that it was that experience that let me know that this was possible. Yeah. That being around all of these people and seeing this creativity, but also seeing that I had found a way to get into this world that I'd only seen on television that, that then showed me it was possible. And after that, it was kind of like, okay, I have to be more vocal that this is what I want to do. Uh, and I really like set my sights on this. Yeah. It's a fun atmosphere. It's definitely like, and those years of the Conan show too, were particularly well, just, you know, and you got to see kind of the, the both sides because there were two comedy shows in that building and you were, got to work on both of them. And they both were kind of, uh, if I, uh, those are sort of like the Sandler years, right? When you were there? No, I got there. Or was there, he after or before? Was, I mean, it was, he was before. So that was Will Ferrell had just joined. Okay. Jim Brewer was kind of, yeah. the, he was kind of the big star of that moment mm-hmm. on the show. That was like Goat Boy yeah. and Joe Pesci. And so it was him. And then like Will Ferrell and Sherry O'Terry were doing the cheerleaders. Yeah. Tracy Morgan, it was his first year. Uh, Norm MacDonald was doing Update. Colin Quinn and Molly Shannon were there. And Colin was a huge uh a huge advocate for me uh, and and was someone who even after I left the internship and went back to college, I, I, at one point SNL was looking for writers and Colin who had read sketches of mine and like helped me like learn how to write sketches. Uh, He suggested my name like two years later to uh, interview for a writing job and uh, I got flown out to New York and I interviewed, didn't get the job, but, uh, but yeah, um, it was, but it was a magical time to be there and to experience all that stuff. And that building too, working in that building, getting to have a reason to get to go to that building every day was magical. Yeah. I, as much as I like, it's funny because I, for so long in my career, I was like, oh, I want to work on SNL and I want to do Weekend Update. That's the thing I want to do. I want to, I want to host Weekend Update. And what's interesting is I, te- you know, I wanted to do that in whatever, 96, 98. I was like, kind of like viewing myself as a failure because I, thought I would graduate college or I didn't even think I would graduate college. I thought I would do this internship and then never go back to school and just stay at SNL forever. And 
I, and then almost a decade later, I wound up on The Daily Show, which didn't exist at the time, but the thing that I wanted to do, that sort of weekend update-like thing, now I'm doing a longer version of it yeah. with The Daily Show. And so it's, but as much as, and as much as I enjoyed my experience of The Daily Show and learned so much, there is something that was very different about going to that building versus the magic of Rockefeller Center. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, I think as like as amazing as the Daily Show was, I a part of me always wished it was Rockefeller. It was Thirty Rock. I, that I still to this day, if they were like, "Hey, would you want to open a a watch shop? You're just going to fix watches and we'll live stream it." I I but you're going to work at a Rockefeller Center. A part of me would be like, "Yeah, sure, I'd do that." Yeah, yeah, yeah just to work in that building. Absolutely. And especially yeah. those days of that building, because uh, it was just really vital. Like there was still like a regular old coffee shop in the lobby, you know, right. and there, it yeah. wasn't all like J Cruz and, and, and chain stores. It was like, there were weird, there, it was a little, you know, you could go down to the basement, you get your dry cleaning done, get a key made, you know, yeah, uh, you know, pick up, something for dinner and, you know, get pantyhose, you know, yeah. uh, if that's, I don't know why that came to mind. I never was buying pantyhose, but you know, it's okay if you're buying pantyhose. Well, by that eight, by that time I was no longer, uh, committing robberies. So I didn't need the pantyhose. Um, anymore, yeah, but sometimes, so. you know, you just, sometimes though, maybe you like to put them on and just sit on the couch and crack open a beer and right. just like feel that same, that's true. Like same, you know, what you felt in those, the afterglow, yeah, of a of a mugging, <laughs> or just put it on to go peeping. They're good for peeping. That's uh, that's true. Yeah, 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 very good for peeping. Um, no, it was just it was just such a it was a great time. It was just uh, always always will, and I also too. I just am always going to be proud to have worked on that show because that show just meant a lot to people to young people that were serious about comedy and that was you know and there were shows that did that for me and to have been on one of those is uh very nice it's a good thing it is um so what was your first like writing gig where did you because you start you were doing stand-up uh and then what was your first writing gig so i graduated college i moved out to la and then i wound up after a few years, I got a job on King of the Hill, and I got hired as a writer on uh, on King of the Hill and worked there for uh, for four seasons. Four wow, seasons. season seven to ten, four yeah. seasons. Yeah, and that was in L.A. Were you already in L.A. at the time? Yeah. So once I graduated college, I wanted to go back to New York, but I didn't think there would be jobs I, I i remember i got offered a job to be the receptionist at snl and i thought well no one goes from receptionist to cast member yeah um and i didn't think that that was possible there is somebody who has gone from like receptionist to writer uh and uh is like the one uh but i didn't i didn't have that that confidence in myself so i uh so yeah so i I was like, oh, there's more opportunity in LA, and yeah. I had a friend out there, so I went to I went out there, and then yeah, I'd been out there for about 
three, three or four years and then got hired as a writer on King of the Hill. Cool. Yeah. And that was, you know, four seasons that, you know, was that till the end, till the show ended? No, I left. Uh, I enjoyed the job, but it was also one of those things where I knew that I wanted to do more than just write. And the longer I was in the job, the harder it was going to be to pursue other opportunities because I think, you know, on the one hand, it felt like my agent was only viewing me as like a TV writer. And so when other opportunities would come around, I'd be like, oh, hey, you know, maybe we could try to see if I could go out for this. And he would be reluctant to pursue those things. Um, and and so I think for me, it was it, I wound up leaving the show feeling like, okay, if I want to really pursue like, you know, being a comedian and doing stuff on camera as well, I maybe have to sort of take the security blanket and and burn it up and just go out there and just try. And so it was a little bit of like blowing everything up and starting all over. Mm-hmm. Now, and you are not afraid to do that because <laughs> you get, well, I mean, you got on the, I mean, the, the, the sort of like, most notable one that I think people still talk about is uh, you were on the daily show and you quit the daily show. Uh, yeah. you, you had a, a, a con. I mean, people can you Google it. People he had, a, you had a conflict with the, uh, with John Stewart about, he did a, a Herman Cain in, imitation that you felt was. I felt it was offensive. Yeah. And I, had brought it up to my bosses and they heard me and agreed with me. Uh, He hadn't done it on the air yet. He was planning to do it. And I brought it up to my bosses and they said that they would talk to him and then he still wanted to do it. And so then I brought it up and it, he got defensive in a way that, uh, I think he felt as though I I was calling him racist when what I was saying was that this was insensitive. And I think he kind of went into that defensive posture that uh, many people who may not be that comfortable talking about race uh, get into. Mm-hmm. And uh, it then... Uh, exploded into something that to me was uh, I, you know, from a power dynamic standpoint, I, I thought the man had fired me and he was, you know, uh, screaming at me. And it was a, it was a very uncomfortable situation. Um, And one that marked my experience there, but also as a full experience at the show, you know, it wasn't the first or only experience that I had in that show where I felt like people weren't uh, being as sensitive to issues of race. Uh, and 
it wasn't the first time that I'd experienced something where I felt offended on because this was something that was racially insensitive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think when there's I a continuation back, of a pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And this was definitely, you know, a thing the way it exploded it, you know, I think it was one of those things where it's like, okay, you've quietly experienced microaggressions and some larger than microaggressions. And, uh, you know, you bring something up and, uh, it then was, uh, you know, I, I think the response was one that was to me beyond the pale of what you would hope in a professional situation, mm-hmm. um, or in any situation really. Right. Right. Uh, and so I, I think, but it was, it was something that I think for me crystallized, oh yeah, my experience here is not one that, uh, feels has felt particularly great or one where I felt particularly, uh, seen or respected, uh, throughout my experience here. So, yeah. Yeah. So it was, it wasn't just that one thing. It was kind of a culmination and. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that experience cemented for me that I didn't, uh, everything I, I had been feeling up to that point. And then after that, I, I actually had agreed to stay one more year and there was some kind of shitty contract stuff that happened in my last year that uh, I just like people were like, well, just just stick around for this one last year and just do this, but get out of here. Um, and uh, but yeah, the last the last year was honestly like I I probably should have left after the blow up. Yeah, the blow up. The blow up happened as I was going into a contract negotiation. Oh boy. And then the contract negotiation was one that, yeah, just kind of like uh, became a thing where I, it really cemented for me that like, okay, I don't feel welcome here. Yeah. I, I had been a writer and a correspondent on the show for uh, three seasons and in my final year there, uh, or three and a half seasons, I guess. And in my final year, uh, they did not want to pay me to be a writer. And so I think in a very passive way, yes, they were saying, Bye. hey, we want you to leave. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, at the, I think at the urging of people in my, in my life, but also out of my own sort of, naive stubbornness was like, well, fine, I'll just stay and I'll collect a year of this check as just on air, despite the fact that, yeah, you are not so subtly saying we don't want you here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They usually, they'll give you a reason to, you know, to let you know, like, Bye, like without saying bye. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a weird thing because it feels almost worse than just saying like bye because it's kind of like, okay, well, now I'm here for a year. Yeah. And I'm just a ghost in this space. Yeah, that's rough. And not like I was already struggling with this idea that I didn't feel like I was appreciated. Yeah. You've just told me 
like from a business affairs we standpoint, don't appreciate we don't appreciate you <laughs> thank you <laughs> well now you took that and because you know and i mean and i can i i think like i i i I hear about that scenario. I wasn't aware of the scenario at the time, but it's like, oh yeah, I see all that. Like I like that all makes sense to me. And especially like in those days too, I think there has been a difference just in terms of, and I think it's been a, a huge thing has been social media has taken comfortable white men and let them be themselves out in the world. And people go like, Hey, wait, you shouldn't do, you, you know, like, I don't like you saying that. Uh, and right. that's offensive to me. Or, you know, like there are people who are hurt by that. Or like uh, there's an issue. There's a part of this that's just like not great about the way you are. And it has it. Uh, it has gotten better. Like, you know, like there's, yeah. like, you know, like within those. And I don't mean in the world, uh, in the world. I don't you know, I mean, who am I to say about that? But certainly within the rooms where it's predominantly white men writing comedy, it's gotten a lot better. It's got, you know, A, there's more women and people of color in those rooms now. Yeah. Uh, because people finally started to take it seriously and know like, you know, like, well, that's just tokenism. Well, um, if you want to look at it that way, sure. But it's also like, how do you correct something without doing the thing that would make the correction? Like, right. how, how do you have diversity, like, because I there's I think there's still plenty of people like, oh yes, diversity is great, uh, but I think we should just lay back and let it happen. <laughs> like, no, yeah. diversity happens by hiring a diverse a diverse staff, you know. Well, and that's and I feel like that's what's so it's it go it goes beyond it too, and I think that's the thing. Like, you know, I was the first black writer the show had hired. I, you know, I was the first person of color as a writer the show had hired. And, you know, John has spoken about it uh, this past summer while he was on a press tour. He talked about he didn't take diversity seriously. Yeah. The thing he's the thing he's saying in that is he didn't take me seriously. Yeah. And that's really the shitty kind of subtext of what he's saying. But it's true. And it wasn't, I think, for so many shows, and especially at that time, just putting a person in the room was enough. Yeah. But what they weren't doing was trying to engage in that person's worldview. Right. And understand what what that person brings to the room other than simply a defense when mm -hmm. a blog says your entire writing staff is just white guys. And, yeah. Yeah. And so I think there is a, an element of it that now it's, it seems as though the tides are shifting what, you know, selfishly there are a lot of us that got caught up in the chum uh, uh, you know, and became sort of the chum of that, that yeah. like, there is no, like, it didn't provide, uh, I'm grateful for what it's provided for rooms today. Uh, 
it still was the situation where, as I said, I'm, I'm the person then who, you know, basically was passive aggressively pushed out of a place where I wonder if I had been in that space. And it's something I still wonder to this day. If I had been in that space and truly felt valued and had been actually valued, I wonder if I would have left when I did. I wonder if I would have stayed longer. I wonder where my career would be if I had stayed another two years, another three years, uh, what path it would have put me on. And I think I look at my experience and I see uh, an aspect of my experience that is one where uh, it hopefully made situations better for the people who came after me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't want to simply be a footnote in the history of like, don't do this. Like I still want to be in a position where uh, I can work as opposed to just an example in an HR report of like, don't scream at your employees uh, when they bring up how you're making them uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I think there's, <laughs> I think there's that part of it too that is like, okay, yeah, for those, and and not just for myself, but I feel like there are a lot of people who experienced the more tokeny aspect of it that you you want to say for those folks, okay, well, that experience. One, we never want you to go through that again, but how do we repair the damage that you experienced? Because I I think there are probably a lot of people who experienced things, whether it was like me or similar things, that left jobs and just didn't work again or left the business or became very selective about the types of work they were going to do, which may limit the type of work they can do. And yeah. so I think it's, there's, there's an aspect of it where you hope that like the, that as we are being a better, you know, trying to push towards inclusion, that some of that is also, okay, those voices who were the ones that, either got silenced or were the examples of these things that like, how do we bring those voices into the rooms as well uh, so that they can also be teaching aids, uh, but also that they can be beyond teaching aids. They can be, uh, they can go back to doing the thing they want to do. If that's writing, if that's performing, if that's directing, whatever those things are. You took what you did on the Daily Show, and were you, is that was that sort of the kind of the area in kind of a topicality kind of a, a topical kind of humor? Is that what you were sort of looking for? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it's it's funny because in my first year, I we did an election special, and I did a bit from Steven's studio. Uh, from the Colbert Report. And I remember going into that building and walking around his offices and then going onto his set. And 
thinking like, wow, this is amazing. This space is great. If Steven ever left, I would love to do some version of like what Steven's doing, but maybe do the kind of like the the sort of arch Cornell West version of what Steven is doing as O'Reilly. And that was, and so for me, there was always an element, I think when I was working on the show that I was like, Oh, that, that feels like a space that like, I would love to, I would love to go and do that. And then when, uh, when I left the daily show, uh, I still wanted to work in late night and work in some kind of a topical late night show uh space and so yeah i I kind of spent a little time trying to figure out okay what does that look like what does my version of that look like and then ultimately that became uh problem areas on hbo and you got you had two seasons two seasons yeah Yeah. and how was that experience i mean uh making that show was it a a happy one i mean did you it was were you finally like finally it's my name up there. There was there was an aspect of feeling like finally, because I definitely felt like when I left the Daily Show, I think even when I left the Daily Show, I thought like, okay, people have seen what I've done. Like there's going to be a market for me. And I watched like, you know, uh, Oliver had gotten last week tonight, Sam B got full frontal. And I was like, yeah. okay, if I take an idea to market, like, somebody's going to be interested. And I went around and did the couch and water tour of going different places. And people were like, no, no, thank you. And wow. uh, And so I sat, so I felt like I was kind of sitting on the sidelines for a few years there. And then I, when I presented the idea to HBO for problem areas, when they were into it, there was this part of me that was like, Oh, finally, like, okay, yeah, yeah, here's, here's, uh, here's this thing. And, and, uh, and, you know, and I, I think even when I think about, you know, Larry, Larry Wilmore got the nightly show. Mm-hmm. And as I was saying, like, when I first got on the daily show, I thought like, it'd be amazing to have like Colbert studio and do a show out of there. And then, so I saw like, oh, okay you know, oh, Larry's doing that. And then Sam's got a show and Oliver's got a show. And so I I really felt like for a while I was just kind of like sitting and, and then, yeah, there was this kind of like finally moment with HBO. And then when it came time to make the show, it was on the one hand, like I was so excited by this opportunity uh, and on the other hand, I was overwhelmed at the responsibility mm-hmm. of it all and just how much it took to make a show, but specifically to make a show like that. If I were to do it again, from a scheduling standpoint, we were rushing and we were basically making a 200-minute documentary I, you know, I, in a, in a 10 episode show. Yeah. And we started working on that documentary fall with the idea that it would be done by spring. And 
that is a crazy schedule for a documentary for a documentary. And so to go to 10 different cities and to try, especially when you're talking to, you know, the first season we focused on policing, the second season we focused on public education. Those are both worlds where access is always like very like restricted and they're very skittish. Cops are for people who uh, wear body cameras and talk about like transparency. They are the scaredest of scaredy cats Mm -hmm. when it comes to like, oh, yeah, come look behind the curtain. Um, And so we had like pieces where we had one piece where we landed in the city having secured agreements to meet with cops and do all these things for the cops to then say, we don't want to meet with you. Mm. And then they would tell some of the other people we were meeting with not to talk to us. Mm. And it was like, and we only had in the first season, we had two days to shoot every piece. And so we're just like flying, trying to get these pieces, trying to put them together at a breakneck pace. And so I think it was, I feel like from a scheduling standpoint, it was an incredibly ambitious thing to try to do. Um, And I'm truly grateful. And also I have learned so much from everyone who worked on the show uh, because we did ask a lot of them. And so there was an aspect of it that was like, I was so impressed by everyone stepping up to the challenge of making this show <coughs> and also stepping up to the challenge of working <coughs> with a first time uh, person being in charge. And I think I learned a lot and I, I saw things that I wish I could do better. I saw things that I was surprised we got right. I saw yeah. things that I was like, I, I, yeah, it was such a learning experience and, I'm very grateful for it. And I I feel like it was not, it was not exactly the show I wanted it to be. Um, But there were a lot of things I was proud that we, that we did. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it was a very well-made show and I, and you know, and I, I haven't seen all of them, but the ones that I have seen, I was always having done, not so much topical kind of remote pieces, but definitely remote pieces. Like I had to learn, I got on the Conan show and they're like, okay, now take a camera to the Miss America pageant and make <laughs> comedy for TV. Like they don't teach you that in improv class, you know? No. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so, uh, but it was, it was a very, very ambitious show with like an, you know, with its heart and head in a very wonderful place, but holy fuck, it was an uphill climb you know just you set yourself a a, you set yourself a a task a really difficult task and I wonder like kind of branching into the next question of like where do you go from here and how does that inform where you go after that you know because it's been a couple of years still but you know but I am but it's the you know I imagine you kind of want to work in that same vein. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would love to. And 
I think, you know, it's, it's that thing of like, I didn't expect the show to end after two seasons. I kind of thought like, Oh, this is the thing I'll do forever. And, you know, it, there were the elements of it where when we would do the kind of like top of show stuff that felt like the fun, silly stuff where we got to, you know, where I think about like the late night that I wanted. Yeah. That I saw, you know, places like late night and SNL. It was like, Oh yeah, here we are. We're making dumb props and we've got a robot and we're doing these silly things. And it was like, Oh, I got that. And then I got these sort of more, heady, uh, serious things that still had room for comedy. And, um, and so I, I, yeah, I, I, it felt like in that way, it was this like perfect marriage of the, the types of things I was interested in. Um, and yeah, I think for me, I would like to continue down this road. I, uh, the ambition of what I was doing with that show and what we were doing, I think to me, part of that ambitious idea was like, this is the thing I, I in my head, I thought I was going to do for a decade. So it was like, well, I got to throw everything. Yeah. I got to put it all on the table because I don't want to do anything else. And, uh, and also I don't know if I'll do anything else. I don't know if, you know, nothing was promised. And I think, I think on some level, because I felt like I had sat on the sidelines for a while, I think I felt a certain, I think I felt a certain both like gratitude, but also pressure that this has to be, I have to put it all out here yeah, because I don't know when or if I'll get this again. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I think going forward, I think I always am going to want to try to be ambitious, but also I think it's not letting that sense of like desperate gratitude yeah. overwhelm in a way that I uh, could make something uncomfortable either for me or for, uh, anyone else who's working in the, in, in the space. Something too compromised. Yeah. 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 Cause I definitely felt like I, even to make the show, I made a fair bit of compromises and there were things where I was like, okay, yeah, I need to do these things just to, just to get this thing on the air because it, I like, I'm just so grateful and I didn't see that, like, I didn't see myself as also that I was a value add to the network. I saw it as like, oh, yeah, they're like, they're doing me the favor by having me on, but also not seeing like, all right, but I'm bringing something to them, too. Like, yeah, it's difficult to strike that balance if you're not a maniac. You know, it's, it's like it's just because you know how rare opportunities are you know what a seller's market you know entertainment business is in terms of like positions like there, yeah. for every position there's a million people wanting in there so you always are feeling like i'm lucky 
You know, like I'm, yeah. you know, the fact that you and I are sitting here talking, we are in the club of lucky people, you know? Yes. Uh, but then you do, like, you can't just present rearward, as Margaret Atwood, um, Atwood puts it. You can't just like, <laughs> you know, here I am to make, because I also too have witnessed people that are like, whatever you want, guys. And that to them means, oh, all right, well, fuck, you're a property now. We'll do whatever the fuck we want with you. And we will, and because you've never said no to us, we just expect yes all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, and it's, it takes time and it takes, you know, uh, you know, there's a certain level of fearlessness or just, or just like, just getting to the point where it's like, look, I'm not, you know, I'll be yeah. okay. I'll be okay. I can, if I, if this doesn't work out, I'll be okay. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, when I look back at it and this is, you know, obviously, uh, thank goodness for therapists and yeah. people that you can talk through these things with. But I think for me, when I look at my career, I, there was a certain element of gratitude, desperate gratitude that I felt in part because I was often the one, I was the diversity hire. Yeah. And with my first job, I was constantly reminded I was the diversity hire. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) It's, It's a lot of fun when someone you respect is constantly reminding you that like you're only here because of diversity and you don't actually cost the show anything. The network is paying for you. So you're kind of a weird freebie. Mm. Um, don't say that. Future employers out there, don't say that. Don't <laughs> no. do that. It's a bad idea. It's hurtful. It's bad yeah. parenting. You know? No, it, it really is. And so, but I think it also is a con it, it creates a conditioning that like, that was my first job in this business. And so it's like, well, I guess I should be grateful to be here. And then I got the daily show and some of that continued where I continued. Like, I I remember like my first week at the daily show, uh, being told like, uh, they were like, uh, John had asked me, uh, what I had been doing. Cause I, right before I got the show, my car had been repossessed. I just lost my apartment and moved in with a friend. Like my life was in the skids financially. And I, they flew me out a week earlier than I was supposed to, to start the show. And I remember him talking about like, like, what were you doing? I was like, I was broke. Like I was like, I, I had just gotten hired to do a voice on a Nickelodeon kids show. And I was like, that's going to maybe cover my rent. But like, I was dead broke. I'd lost my truck. I lost my apartment. I had nothing. I like borrowed $70 to go on a date with a woman uh, because I had no, I had zero cash. And he was like, Oh wow. Like it's crazy because that's what your experience was. But to us, you were just a card on a bulletin board that we just moved here. And it was like, I see what you're saying, but like, you like, do you understand how, like, how, like, you're viewing me as simply a note card that you move around? Yeah. Isn't really like, that's like, 
that's not how you should treat humans as yeah. note cards and like this. And but for me going into the job, I felt so grateful. And yeah. every offense that I felt when you know I would watch people kind of like mock hip hop and do rap hands and like do the weird like yo 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 stuff where it like makes me cringe. I'm like don't say shit just be grateful you're here like you were a note card like that's yeah. how that's how he views you that he could just move you like a note card off the bulletin board yeah yeah and it's and then and it continues to condition you in this way that like oh okay your career is like these moments where people are like that's amazing you worked on this show and it's like yeah but i always felt like i you know like you know, I was constantly being told I should be grateful to be in these spaces. And so it then, yeah, when it, when I got my own thing, I never felt like I had that confidence or that power to truly be like, all right, I, I, I should push back and I should say what I want. And I should be clear about the things that I need for this space to be the show I want it to be. Um, because I should just be grateful to be here because I still felt like I'm just a note card on someone's, on someone's bulletin board that they can just kind of like move around at yeah. will yeah. without yeah. regard for what I'm actually, what I'm actually going through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The thing that you shouldn't relate to is that like these note cards are human beings. And to me, they're note cards. It's like, no, the, the thing you should relate to is that these note cards are human beings. So you need to think of them as human beings, not note cards, you know? Right. Like, it's yeah. Like, yeah. But ultimately, I mean, but there also too is the aspect of like, I mean, we're all note cards on God's bulletin board, but you know, we're, that's God, you know? Right. <laughs> and and yeah. I mean, and it does bring over into show business too, where I mean, I'm sure that like there are grips that feel like, you know, regardless of, of what their race or, or gender, or any, you know, like I'm lucky to be here as a grip, you know, and that, yeah. and what that in a capitalist society, that's just, well, there's an opportunity for exploitation. You're like, okay, right. you're lucky to be here. All right. Well then here, here's a big bowl of shit. Oh, right. yum, yum, yum. You know? Yeah. So, well, I think that was one of the things having a show that I really, I think I really tried to, take in and was a, a a lesson to learn was the idea that like there everyone who is working on this show they have a value and they mean something but also they're going through something yeah and you don't know what they're going through and so don't treat them like a note card yeah you know it, when i think about my experience you know I, it's that idea that like I packed up and moved to New York overnight with no place to stay, no money to my name. And it wasn't, you know, because of the way show business works, uh, I wasn't paid for my first few months on the show. Mm. And I had just been, the show put me up in a hotel for a week. And then I just had to sort of figure it out while working a full-time job. And it was like, Oh yeah. Like I, I think when I got 
the when I got my show, and I wasn't perfect at it, but I think I tried to take that experience and also recognize that like there are 41 people in this building who are all being asked a lot, but are also going through things in their lives. Mm. And you may not get a window into what those things are, but you need to make space for those things. And you need to respect that while you want these things done at a certain time or in a certain way, that there's also this human aspect of it that like these people aren't, you know, they're not robots. They're not, uh, they, they're not, uh, they're not, they're humans. They, yeah, they, they're not machine parts. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not cogs in a wheel and you need to, you need to respect that and respecting that means also carrying the weight of that and the weight of that responsibility that you have to, you have to do right by those people and doing right by those people isn't just simply keeping the lights on in the building. It's also making sure that you do the work to make sure they feel seen, that they feel like they have, that they can come to whether it's you or somebody else when there are problems and when there are issues or when there are just things they need. Yeah. Well, Wyatt, we have been talking for a while here. I've been keeping you a while. And we, uh, oh no, I'm it's just... been, yeah, it's been a, it's, it's been a great conversation and I wish we could go on much longer. Um, I mean, we can, I, I got nowhere to go. <laughs> what are you, are I you have things. To... I have things. Wow. Oh, wow. I have to be on, I have to be on Dana Gould's Dr. Zayas show. Sure. That's uh, I'm sure if I look that up, that's a thing. You're not just making it up to well, I get please. it. Please. Dana get Gould's it. Dr. Zaya show. You don't know about that. I get it. The uh. conversation, it, uh, <laughs> you know, you just weren't, uh, you, you weren't into it. I also yeah. want to make weird puppet shows and animated yeah, shows. Yeah. 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 You've done some puppetry. I, I, we didn't have time to really get into the, the puppet yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. I made a puppet show. Uh, that's kind of my version of, Star Trek in space, if or Star Trek is in space, it is like, in space, yeah. Wow. Uh, Star Trek, but it, but focusing on the kind of uh, uh, the the expendable characters on yeah. the ship, and uh, yeah, and then I've, I want to try to get back into animation. I, I actually learned animation when I was a, a child. Um, I, I took community college classes when I was like twelve or so, and so. I uh, would like to get back into that world too, but always love late night. And, yeah. And uh, yeah. And I'm happy that you guys are still doing stuff and finding ways in this yeah. pandemic to, to we're the old still ma- make late night. We're the old men of the deal, but you know, and sort of, I mean, and everything seems to be so much more topical now, you know, with the, ex- some of them are, di- you know, some of them are less topical than others. Some of them were, seem to be about, party games as as don rickles said when he was when somebody asked him it was in a commercial break asked him like or or maybe it was even on the show like asked him if he was was going to be on one of these shows he said yeah i can't get booked on that show because i don't play ping pong <laughs> <laughs> so we're like oh thanks god yeah. don rickles can say it um, yeah. <laughs> 
But anyway, thank you so much for the time. And I hope when this all sorts out, we can uh, grab a drink or something when all, you know, the world starts up again. I would love that. And yeah. thank you for the time. And thank you. I, you know, I know that you talked about it. We, we talked a little bit about it before, but you really, what you all did and not just with late night, but I also think about what you did with Andy Richter controls the universe and like so much of what I think about when I think about the comedy that I have wanted to make and be a part of, I think about even, you know, you at improv Olympic as somebody who went through that system. Yeah. Uh, I, you are somebody that I appreciate and have learned a lot from simply by getting to watch you. Oh, thank you. And in the opportunities when we've gotten to talk, I have always been grateful for them and have always uh, enjoyed and hoped that I would get to talk to you and get to <laughs> laugh with you. And I, I think about when I started doing late night shows, I wanted to, I wanted to do Conan. That was the show I wanted to do before I did any of the other ones. And one of my greatest moments as a late night moment was getting to do Conan with you guys. And uh, Tenacious D was on. Oh, yeah. And uh, Conan had said, he was like, they're going to perform. And when they're done, don't give up your seat. And he was telling me while they were performing. And it was this very odd thing because it felt like I was being invited in on the joke. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and they came and I stood up and I wasn't going to move and they immediately moved me over and I was sitting on the couch with you. And I remember Jack Black sat in the chair in a very odd way. Like, I think he just sat, like he put his feet in the chair Yeah, and Conan started talking about it. And then you and I and Kyle all did it too. Yeah. And it was this thing where you guys made me feel so welcome to this. Like it was just, we were improvising, but it felt like you all welcomed me into the space in a way that I was so grateful for and so appreciative of. And it really made me feel like, okay, yeah, they see me as an equal or as a peer. And so thank you for seeing me as a peer. That's really about the nicest thing I've heard in months. So I I really appreciate it. Um, Well, thank you. What a lovely way to end uh, this episode of The Three Questions. Uh, Thank you again, Wyatt Sinek, for uh, spending some time with us and talking. And uh, thank you all. Thank you all out there for listening. Um, I will get back at you next week uh, with more of this, I guess. Of us? Uh, no, of just this. Oh, you okay. Know, this whiny voice and the pontificating and the <laughs> wah, wah, I'm sad, uh, that kind of thing. The sad boy hour. Yeah. Anyway, that's what this podcast is called, right? That's right. <laughs> Come back next week no. for more Sad Boy Hour. Bye. <laughs> I've got a big, big love for you. 
The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Galitza Hayek, and engineered by Will Beckton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.